Let's pray. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for this magnificent picture of the Lord Jesus Christ that we will see in your word today. We pray that we might understand more of who he is so that we might respond rightly to him. And uh, we pray that you would grow our trust in our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray it in his name. Amen. I heard a story uh, a while ago. It's, <clears throat> I think it's a great story, so I've told it to lots and lots of people. I'm sorry if I've already told this story to you. But anyway, the story happened, apparently a true story. The story happened in Ireland. A man wanted to impress his girlfriend, and so he took her out for dinner to a fancy restaurant. As they were sitting down at dinner, they looked across and they saw Bono, the, uh, the lead singer from the band U2. Bono was sitting down at another table having dinner with a friend. The man and his girlfriend were both big fans of U2, but they didn't, they didn't want to you know, really make an idiot to themselves or anything like that. They didn't want to disturb Bono, so, so they just sat there at their table. And at one point, Bono got up to go to the bathroom. So the man took his courage in his hands and, and he got up and he, he walked over to Bono's friend at the table. And he said, look, I'm, I'm a bit embarrassed about this, but we're really big fans of Bono. Um, we think he's just fantastic. Do you think he'd mind if we, got a, if we got his autograph and got a photo with him? The friend said, I'm not really sure. I'll check with him, go back and sit down, and if it's OK, I'll signal to you to come over. So they went back and sat down. Bono came back to his table, and after a moment, the friend gives them a signal, come on. So they came over to the table. They said, Bono, thank you so much for being willing to see us. We're such big fans. We think you're fantastic, the best singer in the world. Uh, can we please have your autograph? So they, they got his autograph and then uh, they, they, they gave the mobile phone to, to the friend and said, would you please take photos of us with Bono? You know, we'd be so privileged. And so they, the friend took some nice photos. You know, it was all, all very lovely. Anyway, they went back to their table, finished their meal. And afterwards, the man called for the bill. But the waiter said, it's already been paid for. The man said... Did Bono pay for us? That's so nice, so special. But the waiter said, no, no, it wasn't Bono, it was his friend, Bruce Springsteen. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes, if you knew who you were dealing with, you would act differently. If you knew who you were dealing with, you would act differently. As we saw last week, the Apostle Paul has never met the Colossians. Uh, He's just heard a report about them while he was in jail. His friend Epaphras had told him all about them. Epaphras said to Paul, these people are genuine Christians. They have a sincere faith in Jesus. And so as we saw last week, Paul started off his letter by thanking God for them. He thanked God that they have a sincere faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and Paul prayed that they would keep on going, keep on, keep on growing as Christians, keep growing in knowledge of the Lord Jesus, keep growing in obedience to the Lord Jesus, keep enduring in their faith and he prayed they'll keep on joyfully thanking God because chapter 1 verse 13, God has forgiven them and rescued them out of Satan's kingdom and brought them into Jesus' kingdom. But as we're going to see over the next few weeks, Epaphras also reported a few problems to Paul. There were some false teachers lurking around at Colossae, telling the Colossian Christians that trusting Jesus is not enough to make you a fully-fledged first-class Christian. They were saying you have to do other stuff as well as trust Jesus. They were saying something like, 
yeah, 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 trust Jesus, that's great, that's fine, no problem with that, it's all good. But that's not all there is to it. It's not the whole story. If you really want to step forward as a Christian and be a proper Christian, you have to follow these rules and rituals and practices. The teachers were saying that faith alone, in Jesus alone, is not enough. Now, of course, this is a false teaching. But the thing is this. Paul reckons that if the Colossians realised who Jesus really is, then they would see it. If they could recognise, if they could understand who they are dealing with in Jesus, they would see that it's ridiculous to think that Jesus is insufficient, inadequate, that we have to add to what he has done for us. And so in this next section of Colossians, the Apostle Paul reveals who it is that we are dealing with as Christians. He tells us who Jesus really is. Paul says first that Jesus is the ruler of this creation. Jesus is the boss, the king, the ruler of this creation. Now, Paul uses a couple of expressions to get his idea across, expressions that are not very familiar to us. We can easily get confused about them. Uh, firstly, that he says, firstly, he says that Jesus is the image of God. An image of God is probably familiar to you. Adam is created in the image of God. But the idea of the image is this. Back in those days, if an, if an emperor ruled over a number of different countries, what he would do in the countries where he wasn't actually there, he would set up images of himself. And the image was meant to represent the rule of the emperor over that country. So the emperor ruled through the image. The image made visible the emperor's invisible rule. Let me quote from a commentary. Uh, Images of gods or kings were viewed as representatives of the deity or king. There was a close unity between the god and his image. Paul says Jesus is the image of God. That is, he is the ruler of the universe on God's behalf. He is where the rule of the invisible God becomes visible. He's the ruler. Paul also uses the expression, the firstborn. He says Jesus is the firstborn over creation. Now that doesn't mean that Jesus was created. It's not referring to his birth. Again, it means that he is the boss. Back in those days... The firstborn was the ruler over all the other children. So, for example, back in Genesis chapter 27, you may remember the story of where Jacob steals Esau's uh, blessing. Do you remember that story? Um, So Isaac gives the blessing to who he thinks is the firstborn, and the blessing to the firstborn goes like this. Be Lord over your brothers, and may the sons of your mother bow down to you. The firstborn was supreme in the family. So with both these expressions, image of God, firstborn over creation, Paul is saying the same thing, Jesus is supreme over the whole of creation. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15, have a look with me. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15. (coughs) He, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. He's supreme ruler, Paul goes on now to tell us why he's the ruler, and he uses three prepositions. Uh, Unfortunately, the NIV obscures this a bit, but Paul says that the whole creation was made in Jesus, and he says creation was made through Jesus, and he says creation was made for Jesus, in, through, for. 
All creation, that includes all the physical and spiritual powers of this creation, were made in and through and for Jesus. It's all about him. He's the instrument of creation. He's the purpose for creation. The whole reason everything was made. Creation was made by him. Creation was made for him. That's why he's the boss. Verse 16. For literally in him, all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created literally through him and for him. Paul goes on to say it again. Jesus is the boss of everything. This time he uses another expression. Uh, the idea that Jesus came before everything. Back in those days, if you were older than someone, then the assumption was you were higher in rank. Well, Paul says, Jesus existed before the whole of creation. Therefore, he is higher in rank. Now, also, he says that uh, Jesus is the one who holds everything together. Uh, Jesus didn't just make the universe. He, he's, he's sustaining it. Every moment. One commentator puts it like this. Without him, electrons would not continue to circle nuclei. Gravity would cease to work. The planets would not stay in their orbits. The universe owes its continuing coherence to Christ. Jesus is older and higher in rank. That's why he's the boss. Jesus holds creation together. That's why he's the boss. Verse 17. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. But Jesus isn't just the ruler of this creation. Paul goes on to say that Jesus is the ruler of God's new creation, his future creation. It starts with God's church, God's people. We're a part of this creation, of course, but through Christ we're also a part of God's new creation. When Jesus returns, we will rise from the dead, be part of the new creation. But the thing is, through the resurrection of Jesus, there's a sense in which we already participate in the new creation. We're going to see more of this in chapter 3, but united to the resurrected Christ, there's a sense in which we are already there in heaven, part of the new creation. Well, Paul says Jesus is the boss of this part of God's new creation. He's the head of the church. Paul also says that uh, Jesus, as the first to be raised from the dead, is the firstborn from among the dead. That is, he'll be supreme ruler over everyone who is resurrected at the last day. He's ruler over everyone now in this creation, and he'll be ruler over everyone then, when we're resurrected into God's new creation. And so, says Paul, Jesus will be supreme in everything, both this creation and the next. Verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. So Paul's told us Jesus is ruler of this creation, and he's told us why, because it's made by him and for him. He's told us Jesus is the ruler of God's new creation, and now he goes on to tell us why. It's because all the fullness of God dwells in Jesus. Everything that there is to God is there in Jesus. And it's because he died on the cross, Paul says, to make peace with this whole creation. Verse 19, here's why Jesus is ruler of the new creation, the new resurrection creation. Verse 19, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth 
all things in heaven by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Now, I think we probably just need to stop and think there for a minute. What do you reckon that means? What does it mean that Jesus will reconcile and make peace with everything in heaven and on earth? That's a bit of an unusual statement, don't you think? Not quite what you'd expect. Jesus will reconcile and make peace with everything in heaven and earth. Well, if you think about it, there are a couple of ways that you can reconcile and make peace. Um, You can reconcile and make peace by finding a compromise or by giving in. Uh, If that's what this verse means, then uh, it's saying that everyone will ultimately be saved. Jesus will kind of not worry anymore that they're rejecting God's rule. He'll just kind of give in and compromise. Everyone will go to heaven. Nice thought, really, isn't it? But I don't think that's what this does mean. In fact, in the light of the rest of the New Testament, that cannot be what this means. Uh, The New Testament is clear that not everyone will be saved. We saw it last year in Matthew's Gospel, didn't we? Do you remember what Jesus said? He said, small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life and only a few find it. Jesus said, wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it. This can't mean that Jesus reconciles everything in the sense that he kind of gives up and everyone is saved. So what does it mean? What does it mean? Well, there's another way to understand reconciliation and making peace. Another way that you can reconcile and make peace is by winning the war. So, for example, in World War II, the Allied forces made peace with Germany. The battle was finished. Reconciliation happened. Peace was restored. But it wasn't exactly on Germany's terms, was it? No, no, reconciliation and peace came because Germany was defeated. Germany was forcibly pacified. Reconciliation and peace came through victory. That's more like what God will do through Jesus. This creation is at war with God, but through the cross, Jesus has won victory. And as we saw in our other reading, the day is coming when everything and everyone will have to acknowledge it. The day is coming when everything and everyone will have to bow the knee to him, whether they like it or not. The war will soon be over. Everyone is going to have to stop fighting because God will win. Everything will be brought back into subjection to God. Reconciliation and peace will come, whether people like it or not. Reconciliation and peace will come through the victory of Jesus. And so Paul's point is this. Jesus will be the ruler over the new creation because he will have victory over this one. Everything will be pacified. The war of this creation against God will be over. Everyone will have to bow the knee to him. And so he will rule God's new creation. Paul now turns to the Colossians themselves. He tells them what Jesus has done for them and it's something magnificent, incredibly significant for this creation and the next. He starts off by talking about what their situation was before they put their faith in Jesus. He says that they too were enemies of God. They hated God in their minds. They were rebelling against God in their behaviour. They were looking forward to a future of being defeated by Jesus, of being forced, whether they like it or not, to bow the knee to him. Verse 21, once you were alienated from God, verse 21, and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behaviour. 
The Colossians were enemies of God, but through the cross, God has done something wonderful for them. Through the cross, God has reconciled them to present them not as his defeated enemies. No, no, God has reconciled them to pardon them, to take away his accusations, to cleanse them from the dirt and blemish of their sin. God God has reconciled them to present them as his own special people, his own holy people set apart for him. Instead of his defeated enemies in the new creation, these Colossians will now be his beloved Friends, verse 22, they were enemies, verse 22, but now he's reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you, not as his defeated enemies, no, no, to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. Jesus makes all the difference. The contrast could not be any more stark. All the difference in the world, this world, all the difference in the next world. His death has fixed the Colossians' relationship with God. They will be holy and blameless in God's new creation. Not defeated enemies, but forgiven friends. But there's an if. There's an if. You've got to make sure you read the small print here, because this thing that Jesus has done, it is not automatic. Paul says it requires something from the Colossians. What does it require? It requires that they keep trusting Jesus, that they keep relying on Jesus, that they keep believing the gospel, the good news of who Jesus is and what he has done, the gospel that they've heard. It requires that they stay there and go nowhere. Verse 23, they can be holy and blameless if you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. Friends, it's good news. It isn't just good news for the Colossians. It's good news for you and me as well. Very, very good news. Uh, If you rely on Jesus' death, if you voluntarily submit yourself to Jesus now, you don't have to be his defeated enemy. You can be without blemish, free from accusation, set apart as God's person. That is a massive, massive difference. It is an amazing hope. But friends, you don't want to move away from it. You don't want to move from the hope held out in this good news. You've got to continue in this faith. Don't add to it. Don't subtract from it. Don't go anywhere. Just stay there. Established. Firm. Trusting Jesus alone. Only trusting. Only Jesus. Can you see what God's saying to us here in this passage? Jesus is king of this creation, supreme rule of everything. Jesus is king of God's new creation. Everything, everyone will bow the knee to him. The Colossians themselves, they were enemies of God, facing defeat, but God has graciously pardoned them, cleansed them through Jesus' death, and so what they need to do is keep on relying on Jesus. Don't move anywhere, just trust in what Jesus has done for them. I heard another story, again, apparently a true story. This one happened in Sydney a few years ago. A lady was helping her husband in his jewellery shop. Uh, He had to go out and do some jobs, and so she was minding the shop for him. An American man comes in, gets chatting, sees a large pink argyle diamond. 
he ums and ahs a little bit about it, but uh, he decides that he's going to purchase this diamond. It's worth $30,000, this pink argyle diamond. He decides he wants to buy it, takes it to the counter, uh, tries to put it on his credit card, so she, she swipes the card, and at that moment, the computer freezes. She's thinking, I'm in the middle of the biggest sale of my life, the, the biggest sale of the month for this shop, and the system has to go down. She's stressing like crazy. The man notices that she looks worried. He says, is there something wrong? Is there, is there a problem? Uh, she says, the computer's frozen. He asks her what kind it is. She tells him. And then he says, yeah, OK, I can, I can see the problem there. You need to press this button and that button, and, and that should fix it. She goes, mate, I'm sorry, this, this, is, my this is my husband's computer. I, I really don't want to wreck it. Do you, are you sure you know what you're talking about? Do you know anything about computers? He goes, yeah, I know a bit about computers. She figures it's worth the risk, $30,000. So she does what he says, and the computer starts working again. She says, hey, thanks, you do know a bit about, you do know a bit about computers after all. And the American walks out happily with his pink argyle diamond. Later on, her husband comes back. He says, anything interesting happened while I was away? She tells him the story. The husband says, well, who was the bloke? She goes, I oh, the faintest idea who he was. Have a look on the credit card, see who it was. They check the credit card statement and they find out that they've just sold their diamonds to William Henry Gates III, Bill Gates. Husband says to his wife, I'm glad you admitted he knew a bit about computers. <laughs> Sometimes... If you knew who you were dealing with, you would act differently. Friends, I hope you know who you're dealing with when it comes to Jesus. I hope you know who you're dealing with. I hope you're not just thinking, sweet baby Jesus in the manger, or, or gentle Jesus, meek and mild. I hope you're not thinking of just some ordinary Galilean carpenter, or, or like Paul Hogan, Jesus, my mate, the fisherman. I hope you're not just thinking of some bloke who gave nice moral teachings or something like that. I'll tell you what, I hope you're not thinking of a person who needs your help to save you. I hope you're not thinking of a, of a person who can't manage to do the job on his own without you having to supplement it. We're talking about, friends, the eternal Son of God in whom all the fullness of God dwells. We are talking about the very creator of the universe. We're talking about the one who holds the entire universe in his hands, the one who holds the entire universe together every second of its being, the one for whom the whole universe was made. We're talking about the one who's currently sustaining every atom in your body, your maker, your sustainer, your rightful owner. This man died on a cross and was raised to life and now sits at the right hand of God, this man to whom every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord, this man who holds your eternal destiny in his hands has died for you and he says that he's made a way that you can be holy and blameless before God. He says that he's done what it takes to save you for the new creation and he says what you need to do, he says, just trust me. Submit to me as king, Rely on what I did on the cross for you and just trust me. I tell you what, when you see this picture of Jesus, when you realise who he is, well, the idea that you need to add to what he has done, it just makes no sense at all. How could this Jesus be inadequate to save you without your help? 
is it possible that we could add our obedience to what he has done? Or that we could add some kind of rituals or ceremonies to, to sort of top up where he's not quite up to finishing the job. Honestly, is this Jesus incapable of saving us without our help? Are our pathetic attempts at obedience going to in some way make up for the inadequacy of the ruler of the universe? I don't think so. You only need to say it to see how ridiculous it is. If you recognise who Jesus is, you would never, ever, ever try to add to what he has done for you. Friends, do you realise who you're dealing with? Then you know that he is everything we need. He is everything we need. He's the supreme ruler, the perfect saviour. And so we know what to do, don't we? We know what to do. Humbly and thankfully, continue in our faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. Let's pray. Almighty God, we praise and thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ. We praise you that in him all your fullness dwells. We praise you that he is king of this universe and king of your new creation. We thank you so much that he is the one who has saved us. Heavenly Father, please help us to trust in Jesus alone and to only trust in Jesus alone. We pray it in his name. Amen.